1: It tames a bunch of badasses if you know what I mean They're coming out of the sky, out of the sea And you know, on land gonna take it to the enemy. of me Lock load, boys, time to explode boys Make sure you get home boys They got your back, the pride of the fleet, The bright swinging frogmen of the <laughs>
0: Hey folks, Commander Mark Divine coming at you from sunny, very sunny Escondido, California, um, with the Unbeatable Mind podcast. So welcome back. Um, my guest this week is a friend, uh, someone we've actually chatted to in the past, and you might know him as the author of the Primal Blueprint, best-selling author. I might add, the Primal Blueprint. It's Mark Sisson, also runs the uh, highly trafficked and very, very cool and awesome uh, blog, Mark's Daily Apple which is all about health and nutrition and optimal living, all sorts of things. We're going to talk a lot about that today. We're also going to talk about Mark's new book and some of the other crazy projects he's involved in. So I'm super stoked, Mark, to have you back on the show. Thanks very much for making the time. My pleasure, Mark. Thanks for having me. Great to talk again. Yeah, likewise. You know, it's funny. I don't think we've ever actually physically met, but I, I was at a technology summit just a few weeks ago, Actually, your name came up a couple times in the conversations. I was, I was talking to a few folks who are kind of dancing around your world, and um, I'm pretty sure that we'll be able to meet in a virtual reality space pretty soon.
1: <laughs> that that could well be. We used to have a saying in Maine. You know, it's like we went to we went to different high schools together, mm-hmm. which is you know we sort of traveled in the same circles but just never met. Yeah,
0: we're just swirling around all these different people that know, yeah. know each other. Yeah, that's really cool. So yeah, let's um let's talk about the you know. One of the reasons that we're talking here is because you know we're both involved in kind of writing and staying on the cutting edge in our, our you know respective domains. And you've got a book coming out called Primal Endurance. Now, SEAL fit training, as you are well aware, is a, is a particular form of endurance training. It requires you know, serious stamina, mental toughness, endurance to do our Kokoro camp and. You know, to be a Navy SEAL or, or a special operations guy or a ranger. Right. And so uh, tell me what you've learned in your research for this book. I mean, what,
1: what can you tell our endurance athletes out there that um, that might be interesting and innovative? Yeah, well, the the book sort of came about um, as a as an afterthought because, you know, I spent my life my, – the early part of my life uh, as an endurance athlete, as a marathoner and then a triathlete. And I was fairly good at what I did. I finished fifth in the U.S. National Championships in the marathon, ran 218. Uh, then – got kind of injured and beat up from that training and moved over to triathlon and my first event ever was Ironman but I did I uh, finished 4th in Ironman a year later and but by then I'd realized that the training was just <laughs> devastating it was I wanted to be fit but I also wanted to be healthy and I, I I in fact one of the first books I wrote the Runner's World Triathlon Training book uh, back in 82 made uh, a point to suggest that it was impossible to be healthy and fit at the same time that, that, the, that the at some point you know, they, they start out the, the fitter you become, the healthier you become, but, but as you progress further and further down this road of fitness and being race fit, it, it detracts from your health. It almost of necessity had to uh, cause a deterioration in health to be able to put everything on the line and go to the well and dig as deep, deeply as you could to race at an elite level. Based upon the training and nutrition. Motivation. Correct, correct. So the, tr- exactly. So that the, the wisdom of the day was you just put in as many miles as you could possibly handle without breaking down. And, uh, some of it was, was slow. Not much of it was slow, by the way, some of it was moderately fast and some of it was wickedly fast, as we used to say. And, uh, uh, and then the training, there wasn't much time spent in the gym. It was pretty much very specific. You spent time on the roads because that's where you're going to be racing it uh, involved a diet that was contemplated to provide excessive amounts of carbohydrates with the with the erroneous assumption that you're going to have to refill your glycogen stores every night from today's workout to be able to go and do it again as equally hard tomorrow. And uh, so that diet had its, uh, its own uh, drawbacks. It was just um, way high in sugars and simple carbohydrates just to get that amount of, of glucose and glycogen into the body. Um, We know now that it was very inflammatory. It caused a lot of systemic inflammation, a lot of uh, localized inflammation, which manifested itself in my case in arthritis in my feet, tendonitis in my hips, irritable bowel syndrome, uh, uh, chronically depleted immune system. So I got sick quite often. It was just kind of nasty. It was like, okay, here I am trying to become the epitome of fitness. And I'm like the example of what ill health looks like with all of the afflictions that I was dealing with and uh, so when I when I left the world of high-level competition and started to re-examine my life and what it took to be strong and lean and fit and happy and healthy and productive without all of this pain and suffering um, I started to look at you know the shortcuts how we could get to that point where we could we could be all those things, uh, and enjoy life at the same time. Cause I have to tell you as an endurance athlete, most of the time I was not enjoying myself. I was certainly managing pain. I was certainly feeling like I was, you know, um, a king of the world in my domain, but it wasn't fun. It really wasn't. There were, you know, there were the occasional long runs out in the hills which were beautiful and, and contemplative and, uh, you know, had an element of meditation to them. But, It just wasn't fun, so I sort of rededicated the next twenty years of my life to 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 looking for ways to move that involved having more fun. And so I started doing, you know, I snowboarded and I stand doing stand up paddling, playing ultimate frisbee, slacklining, um, hiking, and and kind of doing that sort of event with my dog and with my kids and with my wife, things that I could enjoy and put out of my mind the idea of ever running a 10K or doing a mud run or a Spartan race or doing a, a, a marathon or a triathlon again, uh, I started to actually write about how devastating that kind of training was. In, in fact, 10 years ago, um, Art Devaney and I coined a phrase chronic cardio, which described the type of training that we all did for years and years. And that was this training where you'd go out and you'd keep your heart rate anywhere from 70 to 85 percent of your max heart rate most of the time. The idea being that you were training yourself for the rigors of an event, that you were digging deep and you were, um, you know, trying to come as close to to the aerobic or the anaerobic threshold as possible and somehow thinking that that was going to improve your efficiency and allow you to race faster and faster over time. And to a certain extent, it did. Um, You know, any amount of training has, I guess, some effect. You know, you can – You could know nothing about weight training and go into the gym and pick up some weights. And even not knowing what you're doing, if you you just go through the movements, you'll get a little bit stronger. But the idea here was how can I become the strongest I possibly can be? And, And in terms of an endurance athlete, when I revisited this a few years ago, I thought, wow, the technology has changed. First of all, the diet has changed. And now this is all about becoming good at burning fat. You know the old paradigm was, oh, how do I manage glycogen so that I don't run out of glycogen? And that meant how do I fill my glycogen stores with carbohydrates every night, every day? How do I carb load? How do I slam down gel packs every 15 minutes on a long ride or in a race? How do I keep from hitting the wall by keeping my sugar levels up during a race? And that was the that was the paradigm for 40 years. That was most of the scientific community agreed amongst themselves yeah, that's probably how you do it. You probably do that by by becoming good at managing your glycogen stores. And yes, we recognized that you ought to be good and efficient at burning fat, but nobody really focused on how do I become so good at burning fat that I can perform for long periods of time deriving 85, 90, 95% of my energy from my stored body fat. And now that when when the sort sort of low carb and ketogenic movement came along when primal and paleo came along and people started reducing the amount of carbs they were taking in and, and they found out that they were they were really pretty good at burning fat. They they developed this new ability to burn stored body fat all the time. And it and it unburdened them of having to continuously resupply carbohydrate to restore glycogen so that they could go out and hammer again and again and again. So the first real piece that fell into place was. This reconfiguring the diet to train your body to become really good and efficient at burning fats. The second piece of this puzzle, this training puzzle, looked at the amount of work that we were doing on the roads and started to look at how much – you know, what was actually happening when you were going at different heart rate levels. And it turns out that when you're racing at 70, 75 to 85 percent of your max heart rate, sometimes up to 90 percent. You're in what we call this sort of black hole, this no man's land where you're not training hard enough to cause major adaptations at the high end, but you're training too hard to allow the aerobic adaptations to take place at the low end. And to break the training cycles down and to say, okay, if we're going to build a better training racing beast, a, be- a better machine, we need to look at the component parts of this machine. and we build, We need to build – Kind of a smart car, a hybrid that, that runs at very efficiently at low levels of aerobic output, but then when it kicks into the high end, maintains power and maintains uh, and is able to sustain that power and can go at a higher speed while still deriving a larger percentage of calories from fat. And it turns out the, the only way to do that is to s- suspend most of your aerobic base building at a very low heart rate. And the, the the term we use, and we we come to it from Phil Maffetone, who started pioneering this 25 years ago, is basically a number that is one 180 minus your age. So I'm 62. So my aerobic pace right now for any appreciable amount of endurance is 118 beats a minute. In the old days, it would have said, are you kidding me? 118 beats a minute? I can't do anything. I can't. That would be like, walking for me or something, I could, my max heart rate, even now my max heart rate's over 170. So this isn't even close to 80% or 75 or even 70% of my max heart rate. But what it means is that when I'm spending that time training at 118 and in my, you know, there's some allowance for your history of endurance. So I could, I could shift mine up to say 123, but still it's a pretty low max heart. rate. If I keep my training at 123 or below, number one, I know that I'm always aerobic. I know that I'm never venturing into the anaerobic or even close to the, uh, the threshold zone, that I'm able to put as much oxygen through my system as possible. I can actually have, carry on conversation when I'm doing this. I can breathe through my nose is one of the tests uh, and, and not you know, get panicky because I'm out of breath. But at that low level of aerobic of heart rate, you know that you're burning mostly fat. So then the strategy and the game becomes the longer I spend training at this low heart rate, the more efficient I become at burning fats. And that efficiency manifests itself. It shows up over time as my ability to race, to run, to ride at a faster pace while still being at that heart rate. So some people come into this and they go, well, geez, Mark, I tried it and um, I could barely walk and keep 118 or jog very easily a you 13-minute know, miles, but after a couple of weeks or a couple of months, they say, dude, I'm, I'm running eight-minute miles now, and I'm keeping my heart rate in that same zone. Well, the fact that your heart rate is in that same zone means you're still very, very aerobic. And all, by definition, you are running faster and faster, burning the burning larger amounts of fat and sparing glycogen. So your efficiency, and this is what we're long-winded way of of, of getting to this we're building your efficiency first your fat burning efficiency so when you become so efficient that now you can that you can burn you can derive 90 95 percent of your energy requirement in a race from fat whereas your competitor right next to you is they're only accessing 30 percent the rest of it's carbohydrate you are de facto sparing glycogen and now once you start to kick it into a higher zone or, or redlining it now you can you're starting from a from a point where you're not going to tap into your glycogen stores as much as the next guy, and you will uh, you will prevail in the race. Um, geez, I've been talking a long time. Should I stop there and let you?
0: <laughs> <laughs> I think you just summarized the entire book.
1: <laughs> yeah, well, that's just the aerobic part. Now we can talk about the you know the the strength part too. But but that's I want people to understand that because when I tell them, you know, part of this being. You know, we say in the book, uh, uh, train slower to go faster, you know, train slower to race faster and they don't, they don't get it. But this is really about, about efficiency, how you become a more efficient fat burning machine so that when you start to do the speed work and the strength work, you're starting from a whole new baseline.
0: Yeah. I, my experience, you know, with, with seal fit and also, you know, CrossFit, the CrossFit world is, you know, those people who get into CrossFit, you know, who used to be endurance athletes. Or recovering, you know, marathoners and, and trothins, they they pick this up pretty quickly. But those people who haven't experienced it firsthand, the power of the high intensity functional movement combined with, the, you know, a, a lower volume on their, on their um, road work, And then, you know, first shifting to paleo and then, then experience, you know, experimenting with more fat and stuff like that, like with bulletproof coffee and all that, you know, those people, it, you know, it, like I said, if you, if you get into CrossFit, you get it right away because you experience it. But if you don't, there's a lot of skepticism still that that this is, um, that this is real, right? So I, I, my sense is there's still a large number of people out there grinding away with long mileage and eating pasta every night. Is that your experience?
1: Oh, totally. I mean, my, my CFO, who's been sort of following me at a distance for five years and adapted his diet and became really into the sort of uh, you know, lower carb, at least eliminating the nasty carbs, higher healthy fats. Moderate protein had lost some weight. was was feeling really good, but just could. There's no way he could buy into this, this concept of training slow uh, to go faster, and yet he's he's a former Cat Two cyclist, so he's a a legitimate athlete, right? And he's and he said he just came up to me a, a couple weeks ago and he said, "Dude," he said, "I just I, I didn't want to tell you this, but for the last six weeks I've been using your program, uh, the Primal Endurance Program, and it's unbelievable how I'm climbing hills." faster and stronger than ever before and I'm taking my buddies out and instead of going 2 hours where we we basically redline for 2 hours we're doing 4 and 5 hour rides every Saturday but we're keeping the heart rates down in in that zone and we're all getting stronger and faster and we're we're finding the times on a measured course coming down even maintaining the low heart rates and he said he's he said I'm I'm a total believer it's it's crazy and I'm this is what I'm going to be doing because the other thing is uh, because I'm not beating myself up riding at 80 percent or 85 or 90 percent of my heart rate, I re- I recover faster. So at the end of the ride, I got the rest of the day where I don't have to take a nap, you know, or or limp around the house. I'm actually spending time with my wife and kids, or I'm you know uh, enjoying other activities because it's not beating me up so much. And that's the one of the biggest elements that we encounter is, and that was my life for for 15 years. It was about. How much could I beat myself up and then go back and do it again the next day? Well, you know, that life shouldn't be about that, really. It should be about what's the most effective way for you to train and get the benefits that you want from your exercise program and be able, by the way, to go compete and do well but also enjoy the rest of your life and not have to be this huge sacrifice that you make to get a third-place age group finishers medal.
0: Right. Is there, you know, like a simple – 30-day or two-week, you know, test or program. You can, you can offer these guys, or you do offer these, you know, hardcore, you know, stuck in the rut endurance athletes who are reluctant to change to just experience, like, really quickly the power of the paleo and ketogenic, you know, uh, impact on endurance training.
1: Well, I mean, the, the only way to experience it is to do it, and that means you've got to suspend disbelief, right? Because so many people are. Step one. Are, yeah. Step one is just to is just to Um, it's just to give in to the, you know, to the, to the research and say, okay, I'm going to do this. It's it, the research is pretty compelling and I think I'll try this. Um, you know, I wrote a book called the 21 day total body transformation. Well, you don't transform in 21 days, but what happens is you shift your metabolism around in 21 days to be where you become good at, at, at burning fat. And virtually every athlete that I've worked with, and that's hundreds of top athletes now, uh, you know, if they get through that 21-day period, they come out the other side and they go, "Wow, this is—I actually do feel like I have more energy. I, I actually feel like I'm burning fat. I'm not reliant on having to have a carbohydrate replacement drink or supplement every couple of hours." And and that's that's the first phase of adaptation. That takes again about a month—30, 21 days to to a month. The next phase of adaptation takes a little bit longer, but you—but realize you're going to get 80% of the benefits in the first 21 days. So the 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 incremental benefits that occur over the next, say, year, are uh, they they continue to accrue, but they just don't accrue so so obviously and rapidly.
0: Right, fascinating. So, is the is your training recommendation for endurance similar to like Cro- uh, Mackenzie's CrossFit endurance, or what's unique or different about the training side?
1: Yeah, so so you know we have a lot of um, we have a lot of of a build up a base building phase. And there are a lot of things that apply to that. So hiking um again playing games um I like I did 2 hours of stand up paddling yesterday and I guarantee you if I was training for a 10k I would count that as training. Uh because I kept my heart rate right in that little in that zone of 115 to 122. Um it was a great workout. I burned a lot of fat. I had a lot of fun, which is a key component of that. I never thought, "Oh my god, when when's it going to be over?" I, what I think to myself is, oh crap, I got to get back for a meeting. I wish I was out here longer. Uh, so that's, I mean, that's part of it is that ability to find ways in which to move around all of which contributes to that building of an aerobic base. But then we start to slot in things like work in the gym. That's, it's, uh, we have a, a principle called maximum sustained power. So the, the, the component of racing that, uh, that we looked at here was what, what is it that, Falls apart when you hit the wall or when you bonk. What is really happening? Is it because you're truly out of glycogen in your muscles in your leg muscles, or is it a combination of other factors? Well, one of the factors is that you lose power. You just have you, since you've never trained those leg muscles to sustain power because you've been doing. You know, when it, when you cr- turn the cranks on a bike, you know, let's say you're doing t- uh, twenty pounds. Of work, but you're doing twenty thousand repetitions on a hundred mile ride, right? Or when you're running, um, you know, even if you're doing hill repeats, you're not doing that much. You're not exerting that much power because you've sp- got to spread it out over, you know, a four hundred meter repeat or whatever. But where you develop power is in the gym. So one of the principles we we look at is this maximum overload principle, where you go in the gym and you you might find whatever your one rep max is, say on a on a weighted squat. And then you pick 80% of that, and then you start to see how many of those you can do with some rest in between. So you might do two repetitions, maybe three repetitions, and then rest 10 or 15 seconds, and then do a couple more, and then rest 10 or 15 seconds, and then do a couple more, and then rest 10 or 15 seconds, do one more. And each time, you're doing close to your maximum power. But over time, you find that you're able to then do – several minutes worth of these exercises that are at 80 percent of your max and all you've done is given a little bit of extra rest in between but you you, you're recruiting fibers deeper and deeper and you're and you're sustaining that power because it is the power necessary to complete 80 percent of your one rep max right well if you get to the point where you're doing six eight or ten minutes of that you don't keep going in terms of time you just go back and increase the weight and kind of start over again because it's about power and it's about sustaining power now how this Applies to racing, say, bikes, is you know, you've got a race with three hill climbs in it, and you're going to go over that first hill at 100% power. That's going to be great. But by the typically, by the, what happens toward the middle of the race, you go over the second hill, now you're only at 85% of your max. And by the time you get to the third hill, you're struggling to, to maintain 70% of your power because you've never trained those, those muscle fibers to produce power time after time after time. Because you never really loaded them up that much. But now you are. And as a result, if you're able to sustain 100% going over the first hill, 95% going over the second hill, 94% going over the third hill, once again, you will be ahead of your competitors. And, and how power is so important in, to a racer is once the power starts to decline, the body adapts by losing form. So you say, oh, my, my quads are, are not able to handle this. So now I'm going to start to involve my lower back. You know what I mean? Or the glutes are going to start to disengage or something's going to happen that that tries to have you do the same work but without form because the one or two key muscle groups that you were depending on couldn't sustain the power over time and they had to defer to to the the secondary muscle groups that don't know how to do this at all. And your form falls apart and when your form falls apart, your efficiency goes downhill and now it takes more energy to do the same movement because you're less efficient. And that's that's really – one of the key ingredients to hitting the wall or bonking is you lose the ability to sustain power, which is, which is obviously sustaining pace. Does that make sense? Yeah, it does. It does.
0: Let me ask you about uh,
1: ketogenesis and ketogenic diets. What, does that play a
0: role, or how do, you, how do you look at ketogenesis?
1: So ketogenics and ketogenesis is a tool that we can elect to employ in this strategy. Part of hitting the wall— Uh, used to be perceived as, again, that's when your leg muscles are running out of glycogen. They can no longer supply the needed glucose to fuel the the muscle contractions. And because you hadn't built the metabolic machinery to burn fat uh, that well, you just simply slowed down and hit the wall and felt like walking. Well, a bunch of years ago, Dr. Tim Noakes out of South Africa postulated that it really wasn't, A lack of glycogen that was causing this issue it was what he called the the central governor theory of the brain it is the brain that is paying attention to all of these signals that are being put out and one of the signals being put out is holy crap there's low blood sugar there's not enough to fuel the muscles and there's not enough to fuel the brain since the brain runs significantly on glucose and when the amount of glucose that's available for the brain declines The brain goes into a kind of a panic mode and says, holy crap, we just need to pull over and and take a nap. And so that theory was when you ran out of glucose, when you ran out of glycogen, you hit the wall because the brain was telling you to pull over, not because the legs were telling you to pull over. And in both cases, it was just – it was assumed that it was a blood sugar, a a glucose issue, a glycogen issue. Well, with the recent research that Finney and Volick have been doing – that a lot of other uh, investigators into low-fat ketogenic diets have been doing, we start to see that the brain becomes adept at burning ketones. And ketones are a byproduct of fat metabolism. Once the body has to go into burning more and more fats, one of the byproducts of putting fats through the liver is the production of this fourth fuel, which we call ketones. Now, most people who are sugar burners, as we say, and have not fat adapted, most people don't know how to burn ketones very efficiently they haven't built the metabolic machinery they haven't created a reason for their genes to upregulate those enzyme systems necessary to become good at burning ketones so they never really get a chance to to use ketones but ketones will be created if you're a carbohydrate dependent sugar burner and you skip two meals you'll start to create ketones your body will say there's no carbohydrate we're low on glycogen let's see what we can do to burn some fat uh, you'll notice it in the breath of these people because it's you've, – you've smelled ketone breath. It has a – it smells like um, rotten apples or garlic in some people. But that's the ketones being expelled through the breath and the urine because the body doesn't know how to burn them yet. It hasn't built the metabolic machinery. Well, once you become fat-adapted, you almost um, tangentially or in parallel become keto-adapted. So the better you become at burning fats, the better you become at burning ketones and using those ketones. Now, when you get to that race where you are less and less dependent on glucose and carbohydrate, where you've become really good at putting a lot of fat through your body and being able to use that fat for fuel to fuel the activity, um, one of those byproducts is ketones. And the ketones, the brain is thrilled to be burning ketones. And so it unburdens the brain of having to have access to glucose. Well the effect of that is now the brain isn't panicked. The brain says, "Hey, you know, we may be at mile 22 of the marathon or we may be at hour 11 of the triathlon, but we're cruising along fine because the I as the brain that's governing all this stuff, I have plenty of ketones to keep firing and to keep me focused and motivated and to maintain my form and maintain my 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 power and get me through the race." So the the ability to tap into this whole this ketone fuel system is yet another tool that endurance athletes can use. Now there's, it it exists on a spectrum. Some of these athletes that we work with uh, that have read primal endurance um, say, you know what? I'm not interested in, in restricting my carbs enough to get into ketosis, but I still like the fact that I'm a, a good fat burner. And I still recognize that I am making some ketones and I am burning some ketones. So I'm happy with that. Others, at the high end of the spectrum might say, you know what, I really want to go all in. I think this whole, this whole uh, ketogenesis concept of training has some serious potential. And I personally think the next breakthrough in world records are going to happen with ketogenic athletes. And that's, again, this ability to become so good at burning fats that you, that you spare glycogen immensely and to become so good at burning ketones that the brain is able to stay focused for long periods of time in a race where you would otherwise – if it were just depending on glucose and blood sugar you'd have long since slowed the pace down pulled out of the race gotten depressed and gone gone home
0: right so with ketogenesis or, or making your you know yourself efficient at burning ketones is this something that you can you can go into a um, like calorie calorie restrict or intermittent fast on a daily cycle or does it require like long periods of time or you know Give me some practical ideas from your perspective and how that works.
1: So so my favorite way of of manipulating this diet to become good at burning ketones is what we call cycla, cyclical ketogenesis. So you're you spend some time in keto in, in ketosis, as they say. Um, maybe it's a week, it might be three days, it might be a week, it might be two weeks, but some amount of time that causes your body to respond by by upregulating those enzyme systems. And then you shift out. A little bit, but you don't shift back to 400, 600 grams a day of carbs. You just shift back to uh, an appropriate amount of carbohydrate intake that still makes you spend most of your uh, time burning fat, and and all the carbs are doing is pretty much topping off your glycogen stores from time to time. Um, But that could be 150 grams a day for even a, a, a top athlete. Could be 250, but it's not 400 or 600. It's just so you're in and out of ketosis, and the old theory was, well, once you got out of ketosis, it took forever to get back in, so it was kind of a pain in the ass. And sort of the new theory is once you've been in ketosis, it's easier to get back in. And and so if you do this cyclically and you get to the point where you're spending a few days in ketosis, two weeks out, out of ketosis, a few days in, a few, you still sort of aggregately uh, in, increase your ability to burn ketones and use those effectively. Uh, so it's um, – Like I don't spend a lot of time in ketosis because I like – I just like vegetables too much, you know, and and because I'm not training for something, I don't – I'm not really in a performance mode anymore. I'm in kind of a maintenance mode. I just want to, you know, maintain my body mass. I want to maintain my body fat level. I want to be able to play and not get injured and that sort of – those are sort of my goals these days. So I don't really have a need to be in ketosis that much. But you know, it's easy enough to do and I've and I've and I you know on a on a bet I'd go into ketosis in two weeks and I'd notice no difference in my probably increase in, in my energy levels, and um, it would be fine. Right.
0: Interesting. What about like one of the things that just in my, my particular routine, I, I try or I, I tend to lean toward you know an intermittent fast where whereby I try you to know, kind of eat dinner maybe at like seven o'clock. But then and I, then I have, you know, oil and I have the typical bulletproof coffee, Dave Asprey's um, convert here. And so I have oil, MCT oil and butter in my coffee. And that's all I eat in the morning when I wake up. And I don't eat again until 1130 or 12. And so, you know, I, I'm, I'm going for like, you know, 16, sometimes 17 hours without eating and i and during my training and i train from you know 7 to 9 or sometimes 7 to 10 doing fit, up walks and crossfit and yoga and i find i have just tremendous you know stable energy through that training cycle
1: so you're good you're good at burning fats and you're good at burning ketones now my own my own routine involves a cup of coffee in the morning uh, but i don't do any calories added to my co- well a little bit of heavy cream a tiny bit of heavy cream and a teaspoon of sugar but but it's basically um, just a cup of coffee, and then I typically don't eat till about twelve thirty or one, and and I will do any workout that I'm going to do is, is usually from nine thirty, maybe I might start at nine thirty or ten or ten thirty in the morning. Could be again a, a long paddle, could be uh, a, a hard workout at the gym, uh, could be intervals, could be any any amount. And I don't, I never feel like I need to, you know, top off my glycogen stores because I'm confident that my liver has enough, and my and my muscles have already stored enough glycogen to get me through whatever workout it is I need to do and from there really good at burning fat and I have all the energy that I want and most importantly I'm not hungry and so if I'm not hungry I don't feel compelled to eat and that's really one of the the key things about um, about the intuitive ability to figure out how much food is appropriate it's like if you're not hungry man don't eat you've got you've got I don't care how low body fat you are you've got enough fat on you to to walk 400 miles so there's plenty of wiggle room there and don't ever think that you're going to cannibalize muscle tissue you know that was the whole thing back in the 80s and 90s and even early 2000s about the oh you know eat five small meals a day um, two to three hours between meals carry tupperware around with you wherever you go uh, because if you skip more than five hours you'll start to cannibalize muscle tissue you remember those days Yeah, so my own diet
0: still does that pretty
1: much. Yeah, and it's that's all predicated on the fact that you're still a sugar burner. And yes, if you're a sugar burner and you go five or six hours without restocking the the, the carbohydrate, the, the glycogen, your brain gets kind of panicky and says, Where's my sugar? Oh, there's none around. I know what I'll do. I'll secrete more cortisol from the adrenals and I'll tear down muscle tissue and take a couple of amino acids and through gluconeogenesis, I'll make some more glucose. Well, what a waste of everything that is. When you become good at burning fat, you never get to that situation. You've got plenty of of energy being created by the by the body fat stores. You probably doubled the amount of mitochondria in your muscles, so you have all these powerhouses, these energy producing systems in your in your muscle cells that are putting through oxygen and fat all day long without you even having to do anything about it, without you having to even take any food off a plate because the, the body doesn't know if the 500 calories it got you from breakfast to 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 lunch came from your thighs, your butt or a plate of of bacon. It doesn't know and it doesn't care. It's all just good fuel. It's all good fat. So there's there was this thing about again about well if I don't eat regularly I'll cannibalize muscle tissue. That goes away when you're good at burning fat because you don't cannibalize muscle tissue anymore. The brain never gets a signal to secrete cortisol so that you have to tear down muscle tissue to create sugar because you've, you've reduced your requirement for sugar so greatly, and you've been able to access stored body fat and make ketones and burn those ketones instead of glucose. And By the way, ketones burn more efficiently, more effectively, and produce more energy per unit than glucose does. It's all just an amazingly wonderful thing.
0: That yeah, is incredible. I, I had a conversation with a fellow named Dr. D'Agostino, Mm-hmm. Sure. I think you know him. Yeah, Don. He's a good guy. And um, he was saying that the, ket- the a ketone, let, let's say you take a equivalent, you got 2,000 calories verse, uh, of glycogen stored at any one time. I think that's right, right? 2,000 kilocalories. Yep, store. yep. When uh, an equivalent amount of ketones is, is equal to like 20,000 or 40,000 calories worth of energy. Yeah, something along those lines. Some, some you know, like geometric magnitude. So when you are efficient at fat burning and producing ketones, and that's I think I, the listeners, you know, confusing thing for them is to, to realize that we're not talking about getting fat. You know, like there's, I've got 11 percent body fat, and I don't eat very much. I eat less than half. It seems like than most of my peers eat, and but I'm just eating way more fat than most people. And I'm burning that fat, like you said, and my body is producing those ketones. And then those ketones provide all of that extra energy. So you don't have to like just consume enormous amounts of fat. It's not like I'm eating gobs of, you know, of fat. I'm just eating more as a percentage of my diet. Right. I'm just like, I'm, I'm kind of an experiential guy. I just wing it and do what feels good and what works for me.
1: Yeah. And that's one of the things that I noticed over time, uh, I used to be of the mindset like, okay, how much food can I eat and not get fat? How much food can I eat and not be uncomfortable? What's the most amount of food I can, uh, you know, I'll finish this this uh, um, cheesecake factory portion of of uh, of food, and uh, most of the world kind of, I think. Or at least most of the the industrial world thinks along those terms. You know, what can I get away with? What's the most amount of food I can get away with? Well, I started to think about what's the converse of that a few years ago. In other words, what's the least amount of food I can eat and maintain muscle mass and maintain energy and never get sick and most importantly, not be hungry? Because hunger, hunger is the is the key ingredient here. It's got to be sustainable. And I find that that it's maybe 30% fewer calories than I used to eat. You know, and that's that's a, an incredible revelation when you go, wait a minute, I'm maintaining my body mass and my energy on 30% fewer calories. What was happening in the old days when I was eating 30% more calories? What, was, what, what amount of oxidative throughput was going on? What amount of oxidative damage was going on? What amount of, of increased metabolism, which by the way isn't necessarily a good thing when, you're, when your metabolism is revving at a high rate, that is not necessarily a good thing. Although people who are trying to lose weight will tell you it is. Um, it's actually aging you faster. And and it was quite the revelation to realize, wow, most of the world who who are – like most of the United States, people who are already fit and trim, they're probably still eating too many, too many calories. They're probably eating too much food for what they actually need. Yeah. When
0: I, when I go out to a restaurant with my wife, we've started to actually just split meals because when I get the meals, I'm like, I, I just can't possibly eat all this food. You know? It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, there's there's really strong research to indicate that less food, you know, leads to a longer life. You know, that's, they've done that study with the rats and
1: that, that it works.
0: So it works with rats.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, obviously rats are not furry little humans, but um, as, as Mike E. just wants to say, but, um, it has worked with, uh, with you know, with the worms and the rat studies and things like that. C-, C. elegans was the worm that they looked at most, that was had the initial most compelling research. And there are you know, there's the Caloric Restriction Society and all these these things that are going on. These human experiments that are sort of self-induced. They're not run by, <laughs> they're not run by um, science foundations because it would be cruel to cause people to have to stick to 1,100 or 1,200 uh, calorie a day diet for most of their lives. But when you, but when you talk about people like you and me who add libidum, you know, eat as much as you feel like eating. Um, and we, we skip the first meal of the day breakfast and we, and then the first, so the first true meal of the day becomes one that you have at noon or later. And then maybe there's a snack somewhere in there. And then there's a, a moderate dinner and you find, wow, it's just, it doesn't take that many calories to maintain my mass and to feel great. And there is that sort of intuitive like sense that, you know what, I think I will live longer doing this than if I were just plowing down copious amounts of food simply because I could get away with it.
0: Right. And I find that when I, let's say I travel or I'm going on vacation or something, and I just, you know, for a day or two fall off my training plan, I mean, I literally go all day without eating. I, I just, my, I, there's not any bone in my body that wants to put food in my, my stomach right now. It's really yeah. interesting. And, you know, so I think when you eat and train this way, your body goes back more towards natural cycles. And you just kind of, like you said earlier, generally eat when you're hungry. And and you're, you're really compelled to keep your training up because you just feel really, really good. And your energy's, you know, very consistent and stable and high. Yeah. Cool. Very cool. What about personalization? I mean, it, what I've been starting to realize is that one size can't possibly fit all with any particular meal or fuel plan. Do you do you, um, kind of advise any testing for personalization in terms of quantity and, or or types of food or that type of thing?
1: Well, what I try to teach is this ability to just intuitively arrive at what works for you. I don't want people to go about their lives going you know measuring. I think the, the movement toward the quantified self is is a bit overboard. People who are you know wearing Fitbits and they go oh God, uh, you know um, it's nine thirty. We just finished a big meal. And I was hoping to get twenty thousand calories today. I got to walk for twenty minutes just to justify the meal I just ate. That I overate. That I shouldn't have eaten so much, or whatever. Uh, we get into these, or people go. Um, I thought I felt okay, but my Fitbit says I should feel like shit because I didn't make, get much sleep last night. Well, you know, it's really it comes down to how do you feel. You know, what is if you feel great and you're not sick and you've got energy, that's really what's most important. And if you can arrive at how do I feel and how I feel is awesome based on the choices I make on a day-to-day basis, then I've succeeded as an educator in giving you a point of view to look at your decisions and your choices moment to moment in terms of, well, does this serve me in the short term and does it not hinder me in the long term? And if those are the metrics that you use to make your decisions, then I think then then anything's fair game. It's, it's really a question of what is going to give you pleasure right now and isn't going to cause you damage in the long run? Then it's probably it's probably fine. So that might mean look, uh, three pieces of that apple pie are going to cause me pleasure in the short term, and there's going they're not going to be any long term damage from that. But if I do this, if I eat a whole piece of pie every day, first of all, the pleasure of it kind of diminishes. It's not as great as it was when I forced myself, or you know, I, I decided not to eat it, and then I had three bites. And and then the lifestyle of it accumulates over time, so I don't want people going, oh well, what what would Mark say here, or what would you know what what did the book that I just read say about this this and this? I just want people to have this ability to make choices, and and once the choice is made, move on. No guilt, no second guessing. Even if it was quote unquote uh, not the perfect choice, move on and 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 do the next thing. That's really the, I think, the essence of, of living an awesome life. Yeah,
0: I agree. Well said. So let's shift fire a little bit, although it's still in the category of food. Um, I was at this abundance seminar with Peter Diamandis back in January, and I ran into a guy named David who runs a company called Dry Farm Wines. Something. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and so this is one area where, like, people might think I'm a purist, but I do like uh, I do like red wine, and I like to enjoy some wine with my wife and. But, you know, I'm 52, and so even a couple glasses of red wine, you know, I do feel a little foggy the next day. And David convinced me that his wines, which were specially selected, you know, to, to not to have a lower alcohol content, to not have any uh, additional stuff, you know, bad stuff in it, right, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, organically farmed and everything, that it doesn't, you know, you don't feel foggy. You feel alert, and you're ready to rock and roll the next day. So I, I my, my first uh, few bottles are arriving today. Uh, but then he mentioned that you had this. Uh, you have tried it, and so I wanted to ask you straight from the horse's mouth: Is this is this legit? Is this wine working?
1: Yeah. So really good, um, good topic of discussion here because my own path was one of uh, drinking wine with every meal. Not every meal, every dinner. Let's <laughs> be clear. Uh, for you know thirty years, and and thinking, well, you know, it's part of the ritual of dinner. It's not really dinner if it's there's not a nice glass of wine there. But uh, about two years ago, I started to think, well, maybe that's just not serving me that well. Um, I noticed I was waking up at 2 or 3 o'clock in the morning and then not being able to fall back to sleep for another hour. And when I don't fall back to sleep, I start thinking about all of the shit that's going on in my life and all of the problems that I have to surmount, and it just wasn't a pleasant experience, and it was kind of happening on a regular basis. So I gave up the wine and— for 30 days and I felt so good. I just said, well, that's it. I'm never going to be a wine drinker again because the, the, the benefits far outweigh or the, the, you know, the benefits of not drinking far outweigh the pleasures, that short-term pleasure, like we talked about, uh, before of the experience in real time. So I met David and Todd, his part, uh, you know, Todd White's the guy that I talked to at, uh, at, uh, dry farm wines. And, you know, and I was so skeptical. No, there's no way, man. You can't, this, this just can't be. And they fought, and they, they pushed and pushed. And finally, Todd said, I want to come to your house in Malibu and do a wine tasting. So he literally came to my house a couple months ago and brought out a sample of six wines. And, you know, we tried them. And, and see, the explanation is this. Most of the wine that we get in the, in the United States has had some form of adulteration. It's either, had, it's either got way too much sugar, and sugar is one of the big issues with hangovers and headaches and, and so on. It's got uh, way too much in the way of sulfites and tannins. Or it's got one of 76 approved additives that the FDA allows vintners to put into wine to improve, to deepen the color or give it the aromatics, you know, and some of these are are pretty nasty uh, additives that you would never think would even be allowed in wine and yet they are. But those are the things that take this, you know, nature's lovely fermented beverage and turn it into... Uh, the beast that it's kind of become and yet you go well why would anybody in the United States um, why would vintners do that? Well that's because that's what the public wants. the public wants a deeper richer more claret, more burgundy uh, with some tobacco notes and you know some more oak notes and a little bit of raspberry and some whatever and and the ultimate product looks good, smells good, tastes good, but feels <laughs> terrible. So I, anyway, I tried – so these guys, what they do is they source wines from around the world. There's – I don't know. I'm going to say there's 30,000 wines around the world, uh, vin, you know, um, uh, winemakers, and maybe 300 of them qualify as having zero kind of additives in this regard. And when you try those wines, they're pretty nice. They, they taste different from what you're used to but not in a bad way. They're just slightly different, and there's something clear about them, um, and you get that little short-term ethanol buzz – but it goes away pretty quickly, and I was—I found I slept better, and I found I woke up without any ill effects. So yeah, I'm anxious for you to try this, Mark. I mean, I, I think now you know. Do I? Am I back to drinking wine every night? No, but but I'm certainly not back to being a teetotaler, where uh, you know I just sort of uh, decided that that wine was out of my life forever. Now it's back in, and the irony here <clears throat> is that it's it's a paleo wine. It basically fits the criteria, which is. It's real food. It's been – yes, it's been – it's basically grape juice. It's been fermented, full stop. You know, no – none of the manufacturing additives put in that we're so used to seeing in U.S.-made commercially – and even a lot of European stuff too – commercially made product.
0: Right. Wow, and that was an unpaid endorsement, by the way. That's cool. (laughs) I can't wait to try it. Yeah. And and we're going to wind down pretty soon, but tell us about your your avocado mayonnaise. I ran into a guy named John Duquesne the other day. What a neat guy. You know who I'm talking about? I don't. Maybe I do. Maybe I'm getting the name wrong. He was um, he was telling me about um, some of the investing in in some of the health um, product companies, and he was talking about the marketplace that um, you and Rob uh, and some of the other folks were involved.
1: Oh, John Durant. John Durant. Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, sure, sure.
0: Yeah, last name John Durant. Yeah, sorry, John. <laughs> when you listen to this, I apologize, buddy. Yeah, John, what a neat guy. I had a good little chat with him uh, just the other day. And he was telling me about uh, you have a, a product of, uh, which is an avocado-based mayonnaise. And right. And it's so just the- rocking it. And you're selling it through this uh, – what's the name of the marketplace? Thrive? or?
1: Yeah, Thrive Market is the online seller, although we're, we're also available on Amazon. We've been the number one top-selling mayonnaise on Amazon for the last five months ahead of, you know, Hellman's, Best Foods, Kraft, all the other majors. Um so we're we're killing it on Thrive and uh, online, and then we're in 800 stores, including about 250 Whole Foods right now. But yeah, it's a, it's a it's the world's first healthy mayonnaise. It's actually made with avocado oil as the only oil that's in there, uh, organic eggs, you know, from cage free hens, uh, organic vinegar from non GMO beets, uh, a little bit of sea salt, and some rosemary extract. And it's just it it tastes just like the mayonnaise that you want it to taste like, and and it's and it's just healthy so that literally the more, the more you put on your food the healthier the meal becomes almost quite literally uh, so we're we're just have great experiencing tremendous reviews about it and a great amount of traction so we've we just recently introduced a chipotle lime flavored version of the mayonnaise uh, which serves as its own dip right out of the jar and then we've uh, introduced a couple of um, salad dressings a uh, Greek vinaigrette and a honey mustard vinaigrette that are also based on avocado oil as the only oil in those dressings along with other the uh, the herbs and spices
0: terrific and then did you create this or was it a collaboration or where, where did this spring from
1: <laughs> well so um it sprang from my um everything i do um everything every product i make i make for myself it's like why doesn't this exist And I just – I thought that the mayonnaise was sort of the holy grail of the paleo world. Like most mayonnaises out there have canola oil, which is nasty, crappy, or soybean oil, which is even worse. Um, They've got uh, sugar in them. They've got a bunch of ingredients that you'd – if you were truly paleo, you'd say, well, there's no way I can ever eat this mayonnaise, which means you either have to make your own, uh, which only works half the time, and it doesn't last that long because uh, it doesn't survive the, the refrigerator that long, or you just give up tuna salad, uh, egg salad, chicken salad, potato salad, and all of those uh, things that you might have otherwise wanted to incorporate in your diet because you couldn't find a good mayonnaise. So we thought, well, if we can introduce a, a healthy mayonnaise and start the ball rolling with foods that actually not only make the the, the meal taste better, but add some functionality in terms of being a healthy oil or having a certain uh, high antioxidant spice uh, or phytonutrient, then that's really where we want to go. And that's become the the focus of Primal Kitchen Foods.
0: That's cool. Very cool. I'm going to to try that as well. All right. We we have been rocking and rolling for almost an hour. I think we probably better give it a break here or us uh – We'll be going for another hour. Super stoked that your book is Primal Endurance. And uh, that is that available yet or is it?
1: Oh, yeah. No, it's it's uh, on Amazon, uh, of course. Uh, Find bookstores everywhere and on primalblueprint.com, which is my e-commerce site.
0: Okay. All right, folks. You heard it from the horse's mouth, Mark Sisson. Go check out his – it sounds like a terrific book, uh, Mark. I can't wait to read it myself. Everyone uh, who's listening, go check it out. Uh, Check out his website, primalblueprint.com, and his blog, Mark Shelly Apple. Uh, Mark's doing some great work. Thank you so much, uh, Mark, for your time. Really appreciate it. My pleasure. Thanks for having me, Mark. Great stuff, and I look forward to meeting you in that virtual reality world. (laughs) You got it. Ah, All right. Take care, uh, Mark, and uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. Thanks for tuning in to Mark Devine's Unveiled Mind podcast. Uh, Train hard, stay safe, and for God's sake, have fun. ya! We'll see you next time.
1: Go you get home, boys. They got your back, the pride of the fleet, the bright-swinging frogmen of the UDT.